0: We're jumping right back into Colossians chapter 3, so you guys can grab your Bibles and open up to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. And so, as you guys might know, you might remember, we've been going through this series of Colossians through the lens of God over all. And last week, Dan touched on the theme of navigating culture as a Christian. We've been redeemed out of that kingdom, yet we still live here for the time being. And so, the command that we were given in the beginning of chapter 3 is to be a people that sets our minds and our hearts on things above, the heavenly things. So, today we're going to dive a little deeper into that and look at how exactly we do that. So, that's why I titled it How to Seek Heavenly Things. So, the key word or the key phrase for us this morning from the text is in order to successfully be a Christian, who is setting our mind on heavenly things, you have to put to death the worldly things that are hindering you. And then you have to immerse yourself in the culture of heaven. So that's our theme for today. That's where we're going. And specifically, we're looking at how Jesus is the God over our spiritual growth and our maturity. So let's read the text and then we'll pray. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, God the Father through him. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we come before you as people who are trying to navigate a crazy world, a crazy culture that wars against your spirit. And so I ask this morning that we would be able to walk out of this room knowing something new and fresh of your heavenly culture, the culture that you've redeemed us into, the kingdom of your beloved Son. Father, would you, would you speak through me by your spirit, and would you help us to walk out of this room Um, knowing areas that we need to change and to grow in, but also knowing the grace that you provide to allow us and empower us to do that and to grow. Jesus, you are the God over our spiritual growth and maturity. You're the God over all, and so we ask you this morning for help and for strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This passage starts out with a really forceful and blunt command to put to death when you read the beginning of chapter 3 the phrase seek heavenly things or seek the things above set your mind on things above i think oftentimes we fall into the trap of thinking about angels and you know flowering trees and rivers and we dream about what heaven's going to be like which is not necessarily a wrong thing but paul's saying right here If you want to set your mind on heavenly things, the first thing you have to do is make war. This is active warfare. You're putting to death what is earthly among you. This isn't a passive daydreaming. This is an active warfare. So step one to being a person that successfully sets your mind and your heart on heavenly things is to put to death the worldly things that would hinder you from doing that. The list in, in uh, verse 5 it starts out with sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? We could go a thousand different places here. and We have kids in the room. I would love to hang out here for the adults and really dig deep into this, but I'm going to keep it kid-friendly, and I'm going to say this. The biblical idea of sexual immorality that this is talking about is using your private body parts for pleasure outside of God's design. So there's, there's two categories or patterns of worldly living that you're going to see in this text that were to put to death. And so this first one I would characterize as a pursuit of pleasure that ignores God's design sexual immorality. What is God's design for sex? I'm just going to keep this brief. If you look at Genesis, it becomes very clear, and all throughout Scripture, that God has designed man and woman to complement one another. He's designed us to be completely and fully united with one person of the opposite sex. And that's the biblical definition of God's design for sexual pleasure. And here, Paul's saying, the worldly pursuit of pleasure would seek pleasure outside of that. It would seek to take the pleasure that's built into God's marriage union and separate it and distort it and manufacture it outside of God's ordained means and the purpose and place of what it is and where it's to be used. The world would seek to rip that out of its context and pursue that alone, ignoring God's design. So again, we could, we could just stop here and like have a sermon on a thousand different topics. But we're going to keep going with what the text says. It starts off with sexual immorality, but, but then it goes on to these words that s- could be seemingly vague and unrelated. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. But what's going on here is it's not necessarily a black and white checklist of things to avoid, so to speak. These are things we're to put to death. But what's going on here is a progression or a spectrum of heart motive all the way to outward behavior. And it's helpful if you look at that verse and reverse the order. Start at covetousness. You know, often we, we think of covetousness because it's one of the top ten sins, right? Right? We think of covetousness as being this big, blatantly obvious, terrible attitude sometimes, and we're like, oh yeah, I'm not not covetous. You know, I want things sometimes, but I don't covet. But I think the reality is that covetousness is very subtle. It's very subtle, and it's much more pervasive than we assume it is. And Paul's saying right here, this spectrum that goes from one tiny little seed to an all-out state of sexual immorality, it begins with covetousness. And what that is, is a heart that's dissatisfied. A heart that's discontent with the current situation. And so here we see, it begins with a seed of covetousness. But then from covetousness, you start to want something else or want something different, which isn't necessarily always wrong, but that want for something else or something more begins to transition into an evil desire. And what that is, is a desire for something that if you were able to do it, would violate God's law. So you see that, that wanting something else or more becomes wanting something that's blatantly wrong and opposes God's law. But it doesn't stop there. This progression goes Next, to passion. And passion would be those evil desires that are left unchecked. You're not taking those things captive because you like thinking about that thing that you want that opposes God's law. And so that desire begins to grow until it consumes you. This passion that he's talking about here is an all-consuming thing that controls what you want and what you do, and you begin to start to come up with schemes of how you can get it. You try to work angles to figure out how you can get that thing that you desire so badly. And then impurity comes into the scene. This is where those internal desires, those internal all-consuming passions, start to seep out into real life, where they become obvious to other people. But it's not yet an all-pervasive state of that behavior. This is just when you're wading into the waters. You're dipping your toes in the edge. You're starting to have opportunities to put in practice those desires. And so you might do a thing here, do a thing there that is immoral. But then, once you start to get a taste of it, then the last thing would be that that state of sexual immorality where you're a person who is known by your immorality. You're a person that is consistently outwardly doing those things that you were desiring. And so Paul is saying that this is a worldly pattern that pursues physical pleasure outside of God's design and you have to put it to death. But he doesn't just talk about pleasure. He also talks about a a worldly pursuit of justice that ignores God's design. Look at verse 8. Put all these things away those things that I just mentioned, but also anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth and don't lie to one another. These are things that, again, if you look at it, it seems like a, an unrelated kind of list of like reactions and things. But look, look more closely with and try to figure out what that common thread is. Why did he list these things together? These are responses when you're living under a worldly system A pattern of worldly living these are responses to personal injustice these are ways when you feel you've been offended when somebody's done wrong this is the worldly response to that and again it's a progression now he doesn't mention in this text the underlying heart attitude at the beginning which i would argue is bitterness based on um, ephesians 4 it's like a parallel text to this and he mentions bitterness in ephesians 4 Um, but in this text, he skips right to the outward behaviors. He skips right to um, obscene talk and slander. So right away, we're seeing, again, these are responses to when people have wronged us. But this is the worldly response, right? This idea of of obscene talk, while I would say it does include just general foul language, I would say it's more than that. In this text, the idea is language that is used to wound somebody. This is using your words to tear down, using your words to abuse somebody, using your words to make a person feel what they've made you feel, that offense. It's using abusive language with the intent to injure. But then slander. Slander is taking something that may be partially true or something that's completely untrue. And then using that as a weapon to ruin somebody else's reputation. You're using your words to injure somebody else. But as your, your bitter heart, you've been offended, and you know it's okay to feel hurt when somebody offends you. That's normal. But it's when your heart is dwelling on that offense in bitterness where it begins to grow and... It's almost like mildew or mold. It's in the the darkness and in the moisture, and it's just growing until it's this monstrous, ugly beast. Well, that's what happens with bitterness. You know, you start to use unkind words. Maybe you're talking about the person. You're using unkind words. Um, But then it progresses to you're in confrontation with the person, and you begin using your language to, to cut them down. You're using your language to ruin their name. And all the while, in your heart, malice starts to take root, and malice is a desire to see that other person suffer. That's what malice is. It's not just, yeah, I've been offended, and I'm upset about it. Malice is saying, I've been offended, and I want that person to suffer. And then in the progression, it just goes beyond malice to all-out wrath. And this is, this is a response of violent outward anger towards another person with the intention to hurt them, and oftentimes wrath would include physical violence. Not necessarily, but it would include that. And so this is the, the the part in the progression where, this is why we see violence and murder in our city and domestic abuse, all these things. These come from a heart that has begun with bitterness, and it's progressed to malice, and all of a sudden your heart has been so steeped in malice and bitterness that you're just outwardly trying to get retribution and revenge on that person to make them feel the wrongs that they've committed. And the last stage of the progression being anger, this general state of being an angry person who's known for their outbursts of wrath. This is the worldly response to injustice that ignores God's design for justice. And you know it's not in the text here but I just have to mention what is God's design for justice? 2nd Peter chapter 3 says that God's wrath or punishment for sin isn't slow as some would define slowness, but in reality God is showing divine forbearance, waiting for those who have been committing these wrongs to repent because God isn't willing that any should perish. God's design for justice is that we would turn to him and understand that Jesus took that pain. The pain that we felt when we were offended, Jesus bore the cost of that when he was crucified. And Jesus is sufficient to cover those sins. That's God's design for justice, right? That we would turn and repent. So you can see in both these cases, a heart of covetousness that's dissatisfied or a heart of bitterness that wants to dwell on the offense that has caused you pain both of these um, verse 5 says specifically the first list is idolatry I would say both are idolatry your heart that desires pleasure more than anything else has removed God from his rightful place and your desires become God that's idolatry your heart that wants to see justice in the way you think is best has removed God from his throne as the ultimate and perfect judge, and you've put your sense of justice on the throne, and you want your sense of justice and wrath to be satisfied the way you see fit. Both of those are idolatry, and both of those are the worldly response to pleasure and justice and injustice. and oh, That is the worldly system. That's the culture we're living in. Paul says, put these things to death. He's not saying just put sexual immorality to death or just put outward bursts of wrath to death. He's saying the whole spectrum from that little tiny seed in your heart all the way to a perpetual state of that thing, all of it, put it to death. The reality is that all the while that you're seeking pleasure your own way or seeking justice your own way, Remember Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Jesus Christ, who is your life, is standing or seated at the right hand of God. And Psalm 16 says He has pleasures forevermore. See, we're trying to lift pleasure out of God's design and chase after it. God has pleasures forevermore. And He's standing there. He's your life. And we're awaiting for Him to return in glory. Yet we're pursuing worldly systems and patterns of living. Paul says, "Put it to death." And uh, just really briefly, if you notice the the current cultural climate with the whole with the Me Too movement and then social media kind of trials for people who are involved in that, that cultural climate is grabbing on to both of these things. Uh, it's a physical, it's a pursuit of physical pleasure outside of God's design. That that would be the guys who are, you know being blasted as they're exposed for their sexual immorality. But on the other side, you have people who maybe they are saying things that are true, maybe they're not, but we go to social media and we then use that as a way to bring justice, which isn't necessarily the way God has designed it. So this you you can see these two things, a pursuit of pleasure and a pursuit of justice outside of God's design. They all of a sudden they bring us to this point in culture where we're divided. Yes, it's wrong for people to be sexually immoral. Immoral. Can't talk. Um, Yes, that's wrong. It's unjust. But it's just as unjust to take somebody and accuse them when they haven't done something and to slander their name. And all of a sudden, we're caught in this mix of we don't know what's true. We don't know who's done what. We don't know what's right and what's wrong. Everybody's just at odds with each other. And it's because... The worldly system pursues these things outside of God's design, and we don't have God in his rightful place overall. Just practically speaking, this act of putting to death the spectrum of pursuing pleasure and the spectrum of pursuing justice, it's going to mean that you have to take steps that are uncomfortable. It's going to mean you have to flee from things, you're going to have to cut off things, you're going to have to reject things. Um, going back to Dan's sermon last week, this is in the category of rejecting. Not, we're not redeeming sexual immorality, we're rejecting it. So anything that would encourage you and incite you to these pursuits that are worldly, cut it off. We're not going to try to redeem things that would take us there, we're going to reject those things. But the second step is not only to put to death, but to immerse yourself in heavenly culture. You guys have probably heard the old phrase, shoot first and ask questions later. That's kind of the idea that we're going with here. It's put these things to death first, and then God's going to work out the rest. Put those things away, and then get into the culture of God's kingdom. And there's three specific characteristics from this text that are of heaven, The things above. These are the culture of God's kingdom that you guys have to put on if you want to walk as a Christian in this culture and and grow and mature. You have to put on these things. So if you look at um, verse 10, the first one being a corporate identity that depends on spiritual renewal. Verse 10 says, Seeing that you have put on the new self, Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Guys, the beautiful thing about this is that if it was up to us to constantly do the right thing, we would just fall flat on our faces every time. But the reality is, this is written to people who are already in Christ. This is written to people who are hidden with Christ in God. Christians. And the reality is that God himself is renewing us, right? So as we're trying to put off these old things, yeah, we're going to have temptations and we're going to fall. That's the reality of it. But God is renewing us. Before you were in Christ, you didn't even know that you needed to put off those things. You were just living in them. Verse 7 says, You walked in them when you were alive to them, right? But now you've been crucified. You're dead to sin. And you're alive in Christ. And Christ is renewing us after his image. This idea of being renewed after His image is not just us copying Him. That's part of it. But the reality is that when we're with Christ, when we're in Christ, His character and holiness is changing us. right? When you're with somebody, you begin to become like them. So as we're in Christ, we're depending on Him for spiritual renewal. We're not going to get this right on our own. We're depending on Jesus by His Spirit. But there's this interesting little word in the beginning of verse 11. Put on the new self, dot, 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 verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew. What does that mean, here? He's saying put on the new self, and then he's saying here like it's a place. The reality is, guys, the new self is not me, myself, and I. When we read that from our cultural perspective, we just think, oh yeah, the new self, the new me, the new version of me, James 2.0. But the reality is that the new self is a corporate identity that is made up of all of God's people. The new self is right here in this room, the people of God, the church. So this brings a drastic difference in how we should approach our day-to-day life. Because when I wake up in the morning, The things that I do, the choices I make, the responses that I use when people have hurt me, they don't just affect me, they affect you. Because my identity isn't just me, my identity is you. And why is my identity you? Look at verse 11. Here, in the new self, there's not Greek and Jew, there's not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian or scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all. Christ is sufficient to save all those groups that he just mentioned. The worst of the worst. The best of the best. Christ is sufficient to save all them. But he's in all. I think we we overlook the importance of being unified with Christ by his spirit. We are spiritually bound to one another. We are one in Christ. That's more than just an idea. We are actually bound to each other so that my actions affect you, and you, and you, because we are one in Christ. Christ is all, and he's in all. This isn't some pantheistic formula. This is to say that Christ has redeemed people from every group, and then he fills us by his Spirit, and unites us together, and therefore is all, and in all. And we are one. And so in this corporate identity, there's a heavenly city, right? This this idea of the, the things above, the kingdom that's come, that's been inaugurated on earth. That's where we're living. And as somebody mentioned this past week, we're, this is the closest to the Garden of Eden that we can experience on earth when we're with the people of God until Jesus returns. So the first characteristic of heavenly culture is that we're identified corporately together. We're one in Christ. And so... That list in verse 11 is crazy because he talks about the Scythians. These were people who were the most barbaric of any barbarians, who would take skulls and cut them in half and drink out of them. They would eat their enemies' flesh when they conquered them. These are crazy people. And he's saying, in Christ, Christ is sufficient to save those people, he's also sufficient to save. The ones like Paul who followed every law, they followed every tradition, they followed every regulation. On the outside, they're spotless. But in Christ, he's sufficient to bring them together and all ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? We're all one. So this should change how we react and respond to one another, right? If God would save the worst of the worst and the cleanest of the cleanest, we have no ground to look at somebody else with spiritual arrogance, but the second thing that he mentions that is a characteristic of heavenly culture is a loving harmony that depends on forgiveness. Look at verse 12, the beginning. It says, So put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Stop right there. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. If you guys look up those words ver- those words and do like a scripture study on those words, those are the same words that describe Jesus. Jesus is God's chosen one, God's holy one, God's beloved son. And here he's saying, you are now God's chosen ones, God's holy ones, God's beloved ones. Going back to the idea of Christ being in all, we're united with Christ. And just like the song we sang, it's no righteousness of our own. It's nothing we've done. No fervent prayer. We are righteous in Christ and are then viewed by God as His holy ones, beloved, because we're united with Christ. So then, man, our relationships with one another should reflect that, right? We're God's chosen ones. So if that person that just hurt you is God's chosen one, holy and beloved, how does that affect how I respond to that person when I've been wronged? Well, here's what Paul says. This is the heavenly culture. Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility. Meekness. Patience. Bearing with one another. These are the characteristics of a people that is in God's kingdom. They're recognizing that together we are God's holy, chosen, beloved ones. And so I'm going to respond to you in that way. I'm going to put on the characteristics of Christ. God's seeing me through the lens of Christ's righteousness, so I'm going to live that way. I'm going to respond with compassion. And notice he says compassionate hearts. He doesn't say do things that look compassionate. He says a compassionate heart. Remember, the way of this world is concerned with outward behavior, right? We can only... Our justice system, right? It it depends on what we can see and measure and the evidence that can be proved, right? But that's not God's kingdom. God sees and knows all things. God knows your heart motive. He's not just concerned with what you look like on the outside. He's saying, my people are compassionate at the very heart because they're depending on me. They're being renewed after my image. And God is the only one who's perfectly compassionate and loving, right? And so as we're brought into Christ... That's how we're to live. There's also this idea, though, of becoming from forgiveness to forgiveness. Look at verse 13. This is the Christian way to respond to injustice. You're bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Guys, if you're in Christ, you don't have ground to walk in unforgiveness. You don't have the right. Because Jesus has bought your forgiveness with his precious blood. We just sang those words. Jesus has saved you. Just like the parable of the servant who was forgiven the massive debt and then he turned to another servant and required a much smaller debt be repaid. And Jesus said, that's not my way. My way is to forgive to bear the cost of that injustice, right? That's what Jesus did on the cross. He bore the pain and the wrath and the cost of our sins. And he's calling us to do the same. Then there's this idea of harmony, a loving harmony in verse 14. Not only are we to live our lives in a way that reflect who Christ is, because he's renewing us, he says, above all these things, you're to put on love. And what does love do? It binds everything together. Specifically, it binds everyone in Christ together in perfect harmony. I don't know about you, but I want harmony in personal relationships. I don't know if there's anybody in here that does not want harmony. But that's what our world needs, right? That's what the world is lacking. That's what the system and the culture of this world is missing is a perfect harmony, right? And Jesus is saying that when you put on love, it's going to bind everything together in that perfect harmony. I was thinking about this idea of harmony. What does harmony do in music? It takes the melody, right? And it comes around it and it supports it and it strengthens it and it accents it and it follows it. And when that happens, the the music becomes so much more beautiful. There's nothing like a tight... Harmony that's moving delicately with the melody. But what happens if you try to have a harmony that goes off a little bit from the melody? It goes from really beautiful to really ugly really quickly. Well, the idea here is that God the Father is the melody. He's the one that's setting the trajectory of all things. All things are from Him and through Him and to Him, right? He's the perfect melody. And so then we come along and we put on love and all of a sudden we're bound together in this perfect harmony and, and what that means is that we're to support and strengthen and follow what God's ultimate all-wise plan and trajectory, where that's going, right? That's our, that's our duty is to come along in harmony and to follow that melody. And, and so even just practically speaking, like in relationship to one another, to be harmonious, you're coming alongside and you're supporting and you're encouraging and you're accenting and you're, you're exalting someone else, not yourself, right? We're not setting the melody here. We're called to be bound together in love. That requires sacrifice. That requires um, viewing others as more significant than yourself. That's another phrase from Scripture. Um, we're called to love a loving harmony that is dependent on forgiveness. That's the key. We're dependent on forgiveness, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then the third thing, He calls us to a corporate identity that's being renewed, a loving harmony that depends on His forgiveness. But the third thing is a, a ministering community that submits to Christ. See, this idea of being one together, it goes beyond just knowing that we're one together. And it ends up in a place where we are a ministering community that is constantly ministering to one another. That's what this text says. Look at verse 15. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Again, that's what this world is missing. The peace of Christ. And he says, This indeed... The peace of Christ is what you were called into. That's the reason Jesus has redeemed you and unified you with himself, right? Is to have his perfect peace established so that all things are made new and made right. So we're called into this community where we are required to let the peace of Christ rule. And that's why we've been called into this body. And then the end of verse 15, he says, Be thankful. So again, going back to this idea of when somebody has wronged me or when someone has a complaint against one another, to let the peace of Christ rule, to submit to Christ in this community means that we have to make a choice. right? If you're driving down the highway and there's a speed limit sign, just because the law says you need to go a certain speed doesn't mean you're automatically going to go that speed. You have to make a choice. Are you going to let the rule dictate how you behave? Are you going to let the law dictate that? Or are you going to let your desires dictate how you drive? It's a very simple concept, but the same thing applies. When you've been wrong, when there's injustice, when somebody does something you don't like, we're in this community together, the peace of Christ is over us regardless, but we still have to make a choice. Are we going to let that rule our hearts? Or are we going to let our desire for our own sense of justice rule our hearts? And this is massively profound. It impacts every area of life. Are you going to let the peace of Christ rule? Are you going to submit to that? Or are you going to submit to your desires and sense of justice? Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule. But then he goes on. How do we do we do this? How do we get better at this? Verse 16, this is what it all comes down to. We're this people of God. We're chosen, holy, beloved ones, united in Christ. We're one together. We're called to let the peace of Christ rule. And he says, by letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And as you do that, what does it look like? Teaching and admonishing, encouraging one another, ministering to one another, exhorting one another In all wisdom. And singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Our life together has to be one that's letting the word of Christ dwell richly. And if you notice in the text, it doesn't say on Sundays. This is all the time. Right? Right? And this is hard for us because we have jobs, we have kids, we have things that we have to accomplish. We can't always be together, right? But the reality is we have a lot of room to grow in this because the people of God is God's kingdom on earth right now, right? This is what we've been called into. This is where we're supposed to let the peace of Christ rule. So I think we could do a better job in prioritizing this community than the other things, that we would spend our time and energy on. Now, I'm not saying neglect responsibilities. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But, guys, this is what we've been called to, this body. And he's saying right here, if you want to let the peace of Christ rule, if you want to be a people that's growing and maturing and spiritually discerning and navigating this culture, you have to dwell together in community and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly by teaching and encouraging and ministering and singing. Those are the things that we're called to as Christians, and these are the things that are going to help us mature. These are the things that are going to let Christ's peace rule in our hearts. The reality is we can't do it alone. We cannot grow and survive and thrive as Christians in this culture on our own. We have to have this community. We have to be together, letting the word of Christ dwell richly. And then he closes out with verse 17. Just to cap it all off. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, even in thought, it doesn't say that, but I would include in thought, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. This is sort of like, if you didn't get it already, do everything in the name of Jesus. The all encompassing catch all command at the end. When you wake up in the morning, what you think, what you want, what you do, all of those things have to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is over all, right? And every choice you make, whether you submit to that or whether you submit to your own way, is going to impact the body. Read through Romans chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Both of those chapters talk about using our bodies as slaves or servants to righteousness, not as slaves or servants to worldly and sinful ways, right? Guys, we're called to do everything in the name of Jesus. And I hate to use the tacky bracelet WWJD, but the reality is we need that reminder. We need that reminder of what would Jesus do? What would Jesus have me do in this situation? Because everything we do must submit to his rule. And, guys, when that is where you're living, when you're immersed in that heavenly culture, that is where the growth and the maturity takes place. And again, it's not depending on your success, it's depending on the grace of God that comes when we immerse ourselves in his kingdom, heavenly kingdom, right, and culture. We're depending on God's spiritual renewal. We're depending on His forgiveness. And we're submitting to Christ. And that, when those things are alive and well in us, that is when we're a people that is setting our minds and our hearts on heavenly things. We can't just sit down and think about angels. We have to be immersed in the heavenly community that Jesus has ransomed His own life to save us and bring us into. He's redeemed us into that community. And guys, this right here, this is it. The people of God, we're we're in this together. So don't neglect the gathering of the saints. Don't neglect it. Prioritize it. If we're having a Thanksgiving dinner, man, this is our opportunity to submit to Christ and to give thanks, right? If you want to successfully be matured as a Christian, It doesn't depend on what you do. It depends on putting to death the old way, the old self, and immersing yourself in God's heavenly culture. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, my prayer right now is just that we would That we would take a look and take an inventory of our own hearts and our lives. Um, That we would evaluate and discern where the areas are that we need to put things to death. Because, Lord, you know well that our flesh is warring against the Spirit inside of us. And um, those old ways and those old habits feel good to us, Lord. We're comfortable in them because that's what we've known for so long. But my prayer is that we would discern those things and put them to death, regardless of the cost and regardless of the discomfort that it would bring, and that we would throw ourselves into you, Lord. That we would shoot first and ask questions later, that we would put those things to death and know that, Christ, you are all, you're all we need, you have all the pleasures forevermore, and you're standing there at the right hand of God, who is willing to give all things to us freely. God, you didn't even spare your son. And here we are living a life where we are chasing after the pleasures of our hearts, the worldly pleasures. We're chasing after our own sense of justice. Lord, would you help us to submit to your rule? Help us to honor you as our king, to let your peace reign in us. But Lord, my (laughs) prayer is that this would draw us closer as your body that this would result in a knitting together of your people, realizing that we've been redeemed, we've been saved, we've been forgiven. And so every single thing that we do or say to one another then must be filtered through the forgiveness that we've received. Jesus, just help us to, to grow in this. Help us to do these things. Help us to apply them and put them into practice. In Jesus' name.